Acts chapter 15, um, I, I want to just take you to a real specific uh, chapter, and uh, we're making it through the book of Acts. We have uh, a little bit more to go, and um, you need to know that the uh, really excited, too, about uh, finishing up what's going on here with uh, Paul and the beginning of the church, and uh, then as soon as we're done with the Acts series, we're, we're moving into Colossians. A series, and I am so excited about that. And we're going to really take our time through that book. And so, uh, you need, if you want to read ahead, classmates, uh, it's a great book for, for all of us. But Acts chapter 15, let's read there. Look at, uh, verse 36. Now, Paul and Barnabas at this, uh, before this had, had, uh, this little scene here had taken place, you need to know that Paul and Barnabas were, um, were divinely called by the Lord, put together to do a great thing for God. They were, uh, it's very interesting to us, it should intrigue us that God does a lot of this, uh, putting together of people as he begins his church, and, uh, Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas at this point, they went together to actually build the church now, the church moving out of Jerusalem. I know I've talked with you about this before, but but it continues to now to spread out into now the Gentile world, the world that's not necessarily the Jewish world. And Paul is obviously the chief, oh, what should I say, the chief orator of the gospel to, this, to, to these people. He goes out, and now he and Barnabas uh, have been doing this. They've been in the trenches. They've been at a very um, important time where they just got finished with the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council was basically a council that really came together and decided, no, you do not have to be circumcised in order to go to heaven. Uh, there is uh, Christ came and he abolished that old law and now we are in the what's called the new covenant and the new creation and the new way of looking at things that was kind of all settled but Paul and Barnabas were total like major players Paul uh, God used his amazing lawyer gifts at that council to be able to talk and uh, Barnabas do you know what his name was Barnabas name what they call him the son of what do you remember Son of encouragement was what Barnabas was. I got a feeling that the two di- there's two guys here that are very different uh, in, in personality. Bar- Barnabas would, would be called the son of encouragement. Paul, if he had a name, would have been called the son of truth. Okay? And if you want to talk about a guy who just wanted to lay it on the line, lay the wood down, was Paul. Okay? That's a good little backdrop to let you understand a little bit about this thing that takes place here in Acts. Look there with me at 36. Sometime later, Paul, look what Paul says. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preached the word. And remember, they had done this. This is after their first missionary journey. They had planted these churches. And so Paul says, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word and see how they're doing, he says. So he he has got an idea. And look what Barnabas says here in verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, the Mark of the Gospel of Mark. Okay. And, but Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him. But Paul did not think it wise to take him. Because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. And Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. 
I want to talk to you, first of all, today about this, this, this line before I get into the specific issues of the conflict. I love this line here in verse 36. Go back up to it where it says, Sometime later Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word and see how they are doing. Um, well, uh, why would Paul want to do that? Help me. Why would Paul want to go back and do that? What do you think? He was concerned about them. Concerned about what? What would he be concerned about? I'm sorry, I have my my gum. I'll put it in my coffee. What's he concerned about? Let's go, let's go back and see the brothers and see how they're doing. You know, like that? Oh, it's just total coffee lover. If you, it doesn't matter. It's a little sugar to it. Relax. I know. It's okay. Um, what's that? Make sure they're doing it right. Hmm. Maybe you heard something. Good. Okay. Okay. Let's say we were to take... Um, let's just decide today. Two o'clock. We're going to take 20 of you. I got free tickets. To, I'm going to go and live on an island in the Bahamas. Somewhere down there. We're just going to take 20 of you. Yeah, a bunch of you would raise your hand to go do that, right? And we're going to go, and we're going to say we're going to go there for six months. And uh, so I go, I set it all up, give you the food, and we're all, you're all set up on the island like Survivor. And I go away, and um, you're like three weeks into it, four weeks into it, and I'm wondering, I wonder if everything's okay. In other words, do you think that there'd be any problems after four or five weeks of living together? Really, you do. What would be what would the problems be? How could it possibly happen, my friend? We're all believers. We all walk on rose petals and love Jesus and sing kumbaya. And, ooh, you know, how could how could anything bad happen on that island? You're in the Bahamas after all. Get to eat lobster every day. What could happen? Tell me. Anybody, any, any thoughts? Who's in charge? Oh, who's in charge? Right. And somebody probably in the third week would look at everybody and go, I don't want lobster for dinner. I've had it already enough. I want fish. And somebody over here says, I don't like fish. In fact, I don't like you. Because you smell like fish. Right? Think about it. Think about how bad it would get. Good grief, it takes me no longer than to be in a hotel room with one of my buddies here when we go on some ministry trip to realize, man, he, he stinks. He doesn't do it right. He, he didn't do what I would do, and I'm sure he's thinking the same thing about me, right? Isn't it true? Don't we have a great tendency to really mess things up? I mean, don't get me wrong, the honeymoon's great. But once you really get into it, we get living with each other, and things can get really bad. It's exactly what happens on these crazy reality shows, right? I can't even watch them anymore, you guys. It's, 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 it's like way off the charts crazy. All these people do is, I mean, what? They get together the first night they're together and they just party, party central, right? Then they begin to do something that we don't do much differently than they. They begin to hate each other. And they do it real well. So I'm sure that Paul, 
as he's thinking about his spiritual concern when he says, how are they doing? I'm sure some of these things were in his mind. He is dealing with what I would call the pastor's daily plight. He was anxious and concerned and maybe even apprehensive about his disciples. Why so concerned? Calvin quotes it like this. The engines with which Satan makes his attacks and the artifices with which he secretly tries to destroy now whole churches and every single one of the faithful. And Satan does. Satan is on the attack. I've talked with you earlier about the fact that one of the the absolute centers of Satan's target is relationships and when he can cause division in relationships. Your marriages, your friendships in the church. Paul knew that if anything has been properly established among men, it rarely remains stable and enduring. Isn't that true of our lives? Whatever's been established in our lives as stable and as rock solid for in some way, the way life takes over, the world that we live in becomes unstable and not rock solid any longer. We can come to church. We can get convicted, if you want to say it like that. The Lord can do something in our lives. We can even walk an aisle. That's what I did a lot of as a child. We can walk a lot an aisle. We can go to a big meeting and we can feel great about great decisions that we're going to make. We're not going to do this anymore. We are going to do this anymore. But whatever happens, it's it, the Satan is on the attack. It is a fight. This world that we live in, things can become very, very unstable. And Paul knew this. Paul knew that their fickleness in their faith was great. He understood their great capacity to wander away from the truth. I want to talk with you about something today real quick in this point. I want, to, I want you to understand the great fickleness of our heart. I've talked with you a little bit about that last week. Understand the great fickleness of our heart. That it is fickle. That it's tough to be able to many times stay with what we know that the Lord has for us. To keep our hearts in check, our intentions and our commitments. Many times it's very difficult. Well, I guess the question would be, if Paul were to come and he had planted this church and he said, how are, how are those 12 Southers doing? I wonder what he would say. If he were to come back and visit us, what, what do you think he'd say? Well, I don't know. I know that I would tell him that I feel that we still have a large majority of the people who are sitting in this room on Sunday morning who feel and um, extremely disenfranchised in their hearts from this body. There's things that are going on in their lives. There's things that have gone on in their past that they believe has separated them for eternity from ever entering into any kind of community with people. It's true. There's many of you here that today I would be able to give Paul a cynical report. And the cynical report would be, I just don't know if they're ever going to walk over the edge of anybody ever getting to know them and who they really are. Or for them, for that matter, ever getting to know anybody else. 
We have many people who are very content, even here, and I'm just talking about us now, and please let me speak honestly with you, who are very, very content to live on the very outer ring of relationships. Nobody knows me, and that's okay. I don't want anybody to know me, because I don't want you to say anything painful to me that I could possibly not want to hear. I don't want to be in a group for obvious reasons. I don't want that to take up any of my time and how I want to live my life. We can go on and on and on. I think it's one of the things he'd say. What's happened to us? Why are we so, why is this forum right here so easy for us to be able to come to? But why is the forum of us getting together with other brothers and sisters and really talking about what's going on in our lives? Why is that more difficult? One of the things I'm going to challenge you with as we get together in groups at the Millers on the 28th is this. What would it look like for us to have a year where we invited God to substantially change our relationships and our relationship with Him and the the people in our group? What would that look like? I'm talking about far more than people in Nashville that get get together, hang out, and drink, you know, Heineken or whatever your beer choice is, or go to the wine bar and do your thing. I'm talking about something far, far, not even, not even in that universe. I'm talking about people that are going to engage into each other's heart and say, what does biblical community really look like? Because i got a feeling that it looks way different than how I'm living my life. It's going to be really ugly to do that. Think about that. This here is, I, you've heard me say this before, this is a great environment for us to come to. Because nobody, can, nobody really has to know us. We can come down and sit our white fanny in the chair. And we can just kind of listen. <laughs> and nobody even knows after this if it affected me. The only way they may know is if I look at somebody and say, man, that was a good sermon. Oh boy, save me from the good sermons anymore. You know what, I don't need any good sermons. I need a sermon. I need I need the word that just wrecks me. I I I, I just want to be I want to be laid out, and and that that can happen, but it just doesn't have to happen here. Sorry to get in my soapbox there. How are we doing? Let me just ask you a question. This is something we do we do really easy. Hey, how are you doing? Don't we? Paul says it. Let's go find out from the brothers how we doing, how they're doing. Paul's idea of how they're doing is different than us after the service going, Hey, how, how y'all doing? How you doing? Right? It's different. What, what is it? It goes way deeper. It has a deep spiritual concern for our spiritual welfare and what's really going on in the heart of our journey. Let me ask you something. Does anybody really know that about you? Do you have anybody in your life that can look at you and say, Hey, how are you doing? How are you doing? Not, not, not like on Sunday, how are you doing? How are you doing? What's happening inside of that head and heart of yours? Right? Oh, we, we do that, but we do that in a very anemic way. We do that when everybody gets in trouble and then guess who they want to talk to? Me. Who cares about me? We need to develop a community that you would actually be able to look at, that you would actually have brothers and sisters in your life that can say to you, how are you doing? And you can respond to them. But for some reason in our culture, are you getting mad at me yet? For some reason in our culture, 
Now I don't want those brothers in my life. I got to give you permission to be in my life. That's where we've come to as our, I want you to think about that for a minute. I've got to give you permission to be in my life. Well, okay. Have you, uh, let's just take that for example. Is there anybody that in your life that you've given permission? Is there anybody in your life that you've walked up to, no, actually, and said these words, I give you permission to ask me whatever question you want to ask me about my spiritual life. Anything. It's all open ground. Have you ever said that? Are you kidding me? The majority of you are looking at me right now going, that, that, is, that is so frightening to me. I'm tightening my whole body up. No, just thinking that I would ask that question. Why? That's the question for you then. Why? What's so scary about that? Think about it. What's so scary about that? Have we become so privatized in our life that it almost offends you when somebody actually wants to know what's really going on in your heart? What's really going on? Let me, let me just stop for a minute. Think about this question. What's really going on? What's happening in there? What's happening in that heart and that head of yours when you lay your head down at night and you look up at the ceiling and you think about your life? What's happening? What's happening with a lot of you? If the truth were to be told is that you're completely, you feel completely and utter shame and broken beyond repair. But nobody will know. Paul's burning desire, he has a, this passion to be able to counteract what's going on. That's part of the pastoral calling, is as all these things are going on with community and all these privatization issues and all these issues of sin and all these issues of things we think about, Paul's passion is to counteract that, is to, is to step in and go, Lord, with your power, let me step in and in some way help. How can I help? And by the way, we need to do that with each other. How can I step in and help with the power of the living God? Not my power. With the resurrection power of the cross to step into my relationships and help. That's what Paul's desire was. That's what he, he said, I want to go and see how they're doing. It's a good, good thing. I love it. I, did, I passed over the verse, but in verse 32 it said that Judas and Silas were walking around encouraging and strengthening the church. I need, I, I, I need my brothers to encourage and strengthen me. We did something this last week I want to share with you. Took the, uh, the full-time staff uh, up to a lake house, and uh, we did an exercise. And uh, the exercise that we did was what's called uh, stop, start, continue. We were able to look at each other on the team, and everybody had to look at everybody and say, this is something I want you to stop, this is something I want you to start, and this is something I want you to continue. So as soon as I said, to, I said this to the, to, to the staff, what do you think the reaction was with some of them? Lord, what, what, is, what are they going to tell me to stop? Is that going to mean I'm a bad person? 
right? Don't we think that? Randy looked over at me, and you, many of you know that Randy and I have a history together. And he looked at me and he said, uh, as he started to talk, he just lost it. Just said, I can't even, I can't even say what I want to say. I, it's just unbelievable what God's done. And he looked at me and he said something that, that, have you ever had this before? It helped and it hurt at the same time. It was so good and it was so painful. And he said, Joel, I, I really want you to worship more and spend more time in the Word. Because when you do, it destroys me in the best way. And as I thought about that, I could have really taken that in a really weak way. And the weak way would have been, oh, you not, he doesn't think I'm in the Word. I'm, I'm going to go bust him over the head. Or I could have taken that in the way that God had something to say to me in that. But I had a brother who was willing to be spiritually concerned for me. And I'm going to tell you something. We've got to have it. And if you don't have it, hunt it down. Because it's worthy. It's difficult. But it's worthy. A sister for you sisters. How are you doing? Second thing I want to get to there is conflict. I spent way too much time on that first part. So let me, let me make it through here real quick. As we talk about love and conflict, let me first of all uh, make sure that you understand something. That the conflict here was basically about the fact that Mark had earlier deserted uh, them on a previous missionary excursion. And, and because of this desertion, Paul uh, thought this was a very serious offense. Um, Mark uh, was also Barnabas' cousin. And uh, Barnabas was the son of encouragement. So I would imagine that there's a little bit of this going on. You ever met people like this? Thank God for them. Oh, come on, man. Let's just give them grace. You ever met those folks? You may be one of them. There's a ton of them. Boy, do we need them. Paul was probably, grace? He deserted us. He deserted his calling. Paul wasn't indicting him on his faith. He was just a little bit upset at the fact that Mark had deserted before. And now he was going, wait a minute, we're going to call this guy to be a mouthpiece for God and he deserted us? So that's where the two conflicts, or that's where the conflict takes place. Now, here's what, um, here, here's what you'd like to ask in this. And it's what we always ask and it's the most wrong question that we, you could ask. Who was what? Who was right? Well, what if we, what if I were to challenge you and look at, look at you and say, they both were. They both were right, and they probably both were wrong. Now, let's get into love and conflict. Let me share this with you. Please follow along with me. I, wanna, I really want to get this with you. Love and conflict, as, as it relates right there, as I have them next to each other, you know what those are? That's brother and sister. They always go together. Or you could say brother and brother, or sister and sister. They're twins. They, are, they rarely will separate in true biblical relationships. Now, that may be something that you don't think of. Because normally when we think of, 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 of conflict, we think, well, if we have conflict, then we, could possibly, we, we couldn't possibly be Christians. Well, of course, that's, many of us are raised that way. 
So, in other words, the absence of conflict says good things about us being Christians. It's like the couple who walks into my office and says, we've been dating for, for a year and, and we're going to get married. Well, you know, this happens all the time. We're going we're to get married. And I say, great. And one of the first questions I love to ask couples is just tell me about the greatest fight you've had in the last month. And they look at me and the young lady goes, we don't fight. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, is that, that's, that's a good thing? She goes, well, yeah, that's a great thing. I said, why? Why is that such a good thing? And by the time we peel back the onion, I realized that she believes it's a good thing because when she was five and six years old sitting around our kitchen table in wherever Missouri or wherever, wherever California, wherever it was she grew up on, she came to realize that what that in order to really live together, you don't get into conflict with each other. But what do you do with the conflict is you kind of you kind of push it off to the side. Nothing's big enough to really talk to each other about. But that's kind of how it is. Listen to this quote. This is cool. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to be sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safely in the casket of your selfishness. And in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will not change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from the dangers of love is hell. So good. Because when we think about it, many of us live lives trying to avoid avoid all entanglements. We can't possibly look at the pain of entering into a conflict with anyone, let alone our spouse. Where do we get this from? Normally, this comes from the way that you've been raised. Obviously, here, we have two men that are giants of the faith that have got into conflict with each other. I love the fact that it's in the Bible. But many of us have a different view of it than that. I was watching the movie Walk the Line yesterday. It's probably my fourth or fifth time that I've seen it. And I'm intrigued in that movie about the relationship between Ray Cash and Johnny Cash. Ray Cash is Johnny's dad. And they've had quite a past. Obviously, Jack, Johnny Cash's brother, dies in an accident when he was young. And he feels that in this accident, his father has blamed him terribly. There's a scene in the movie where his father goes off in complete anger and Johnny has to run from his father into his room and shut the door. You begin to see kind of a bird's eye view of how this young man was raised and what he thought about conflict. And the scene comes to its epic peace, its epic climax when Johnny finally tries to get right with drugs, he has his house on a lake house down here in Hendersonville. And he invites people to come to the Thanksgiving dinner, right? And he invites his dad and mom. 
And finally he decides, and you have a man here, and this is how you could actually describe it. You have a man who comes to that table with June Carter sitting next to him and the kids, and everybody's around there, and everybody's being congenial and cordial, and everything's fine. And you have Johnny walking in who had to, who just, he has to take drugs because he's absolutely like a bomb shelter. His whole life he's had these bombs from his dad dropped on him. And he's just this busted, absolute busted individual. And he won't talk with anybody about it, but he will run to drugs to hopefully help him in the pain. And finally, in this moment, he finally looks at his dad. And in the most crazy and dysfunctional way, he looks at his dad and just says, we're talking about this right now. And it all comes out kind of ugly and terrible. And in this conversation, his dad doesn't decide to communicate with him. His dad decides to do to him what he's already done to him his whole life. And he says this to him. Mr. Big Shot, he says to Johnny. Mr. Pill Poppin' Rockstar. Who are you to judge? You ain't got nothing. Big empty house, nothing. Children you don't see, nothing. Big old expensive tractor stuck in the mud, nothing. And a lot of us in this room are like Johnny Cash. The bombs have been dropped on us and have dismantled all of our abilities to deal with life, let alone conflict. And we actually live in these bomb shelters. And we have decided that the best way to handle any conflict is not to handle it at all. It's to avoid it at all cost. We have decided to be the best way to handle this life is to be a people pleaser, a bomb receiver where we keep everybody happy. I just want people to like me. One of my favorite skits of all time on Saturday Night Live was a skit uh, called Stuart Smalley Daily. The Daily, uh, what is it? Confessions of Stuart Smalley. What? Affirmations. I'm sorry. The Daily Affirmations of Stuart Smalley. And I looked up one today that I got to read to you because you want to talk about being a people pleaser. When you, when you want to talk about us being like Johnny, we're just like Stuart too. Listen to this. There's an open on Stuart giving himself a pep talk in the full-length mirror. I'm going to do a terrific show today. And I'm going to help people. Because I'm good enough. I'm smart enough and doggone it. What? People like me. He t- the camera turns on and he says this. This is unbelievable. Hello, I'm Stuart Smalley. And it's great to be back. As some of you probably know, I was hit by a bus. And um, I'm grateful for all the cards and letters. And I'd like to start the show by making amends uh, to the bus driver, Louis Cologne, uh, who felt terrible about the whole thing. Louis, um, it was not your fault. I was uh, having a horrible week, and I was in horrendous chain spiral, and I essentially let the bus hit me. I guess I just wanted some drama, which I got in spades. And so, Lewis, I'm sorry. Aren't a lot of us just like that? 
But the way that we're going to really escape or get out of conflict is we're just going to tell everybody, oh, we're sorry, we, we didn't want to rock the boat. Oh, Daddy, I know that you've really treated me wrong, but I don't want to say anything because I just don't want to rock the boat. Maybe you need to rock the boat. In fact, that's probably exactly what you need is to rock the boat, is to speak the truth in love, as the Bible says. And yet some of us are here, and we aren't people pleasers, but we're people destroyers. We're going to handle the conflict, all right, and we're going to handle it by being right. Any conflict that we walk into, we're going to be a warrior. We're like these ultimate fighter guys. Might is right. I'm going to just beat you down and win. So some of us are like that, too. Let me close by saying this. This wasn't the, ca- the, uh, the situation with Paul and Barnabas. They didn't avoid conflict. They were honest with each other about their convictions. They loved each other enough to speak the truth in love. Can I say that to you again? They loved each other enough to speak the truth in love. They loved each other enough to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4 says this, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. That verse is about unity. And I speak the truth in love because I believe in something far greater than winning or my opinion. I believe in us, our marriage, our friendship, our church, our unity. That's more important than me. Something far greater than winning, something far greater than my rules, something far greater than my rights, something far greater than me. In fact, as I think about speaking the truth in love, unity isn't about winning at all. It's usually about losing. It's about communicating love for the sake of unity. Is it possible for us to be a people who speak to each other with that kind of love and that kind of truth without destroying each other? Do you understand the conflict landscape that's going to develop over the course of the next year as we just are together and we are on the island together, if you will? Does Christ's love compel us enough to deal with our issues with each other? Does Christ's love compel us to look at each other and look at our marriages, your wife, your husband, and say, I'm ready to lose today. I'm ready to lose anything that's about me so that the gospel in Christ can be the center of our relationship. I'm ready. Do you think that'll bring power to your spouse? To you? To your friendships? The answer is yes, it will. Yes, it will. Think about that. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And we don't like this kind of stuff. We, I know I don't. I pray that we would be a people that would really desire unity in all of our relationships. And I pray that we would be loving enough and truthful enough to want to sit with our brothers and sisters and just talk. I pray that we would uh, be a people that wouldn't be so concerned about being right, but would be concerned about being together. And that's in our marriages and in our friendships and in our church, in our small groups. Lord, I I pray that that the the song this morning that we sang, that greater things have yet to come for this city, I pray that one of those greater things would be our unity in this room, that our, our marriages in this room, our relationships in this room would be unified. 
We pray all these things in your name. Amen.